You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Once in a while, a book will force you to think about the place where you were born, how you were raised, and how those original influences inform every detail of your life. In a new novel from the African country of Namibia, debut author Remy Gamije shines a spotlight on the city of Windhoek, the capital of Namibia. This is a place not well explored in literature. The sense of place is so important to this author that as I was preparing for this discussion, he wanted to know my place of origin and my path of migration. This intense interest in where a person is from shows up in every sentence on the page. The novel is The Eternal Audience of One. It was just released in the United States. All Real Fiction episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and wherever you listen to podcasts. I will be back in a moment with author Remy Gamije, who joins me from Windhoek, Namibia. My guest today is Remy Gamije. He is a Rwandan-born Namibian writer and photographer. His debut novel, The Eternal Audience of One, was first published in South Africa by Blackbird Books and was just released in the United States. Joining me from Windhoek, Namibia, is author Remy Gamije. Remy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Laurie. It's such a pleasure to be here. In the opening pages of the eternal audience of one, the reader is really very well situated to the city where uh, the story takes place, at least in the beginning, which is the capital city of Namibia. And there's a line that says, the best thing to do in the city is arrive and leave. Now, I mentioned just now that you're living there. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little something about your own experience living? Um, I mean, when you live here, it's a very challenging place to be living in. Vintok is a very small, by my my opinion, it's a very small capital city. Uh, It's a bit slow. Uh, Not a lot of cultural activities happening here. Not a lot of arts uh, going on in the art scene. We're really an emerging national identity. The country's only like... 30 years old. So we're we're really coming along slowly but surely. But yeah, when you're young, this is just a very harsh place to live, uh, especially when you spent all of your time being raised by MTV and popular culture and that all all the wonderful (laughs) things seem to be happening outside. And I think that sensation is even heightened when you're a literary, you're a reader, you're part of the Vintu Public Library and all of the wonderful stories you read seem to tell you that life is happening elsewhere. I mean, there's no Namibian uh, Famous Five or Secret Seven or Hardy Boys. Uh, There's a reason why those things happen in in rural London or wherever it is that they might take place. Um, And my take on it is just, it's a very hard place. And it always felt to me growing up here that the best place to, the way to enjoy it was to be here for a little while. 
um, to enjoy the tourist attractions, to take part in some of the cultural activities. But anything long-term would be definitely more challenging. Integrating to Namibian society can be quite hard, especially if you're a Black African. Um, and so those are, those are my sentiments for saying that, you know, the best thing to do is arrive and leave. But if you do stay here, um, you can have a wonderful adventure with Vintuk and Namibian society. Like any place in the world, it is very challenging to live in. But I think this one is exceptionally challenging. But if you stick it out, you get some very, very wonderful rewards along the way. When you see the best side of Vintuk, you also simultaneously see the worst side. It's, it's, you can't mm. divide or separate the two. So yes, you have these amazing striking sunsets in the high summer, but you see the geography and how the people live. And it's, it's like this contrast that exists simultaneously and you can't separate the two. So it's impossible for anybody. I think anybody who is conscious or aware to just see one or the other, you see both at the same time. And I think that is the weird beauty and ugliness of Vintuk life. I think that's really important to think about because, uh, you know, perhaps in the United States and other countries, when we think about Namibia, we think about those wonderful yeah, dunes yeah. and the, the wildlife. And uh, Vintuk is something that either you pass through quickly or, yeah. or or bypass. And so when when you read a book like this, and again, the novel is titled The Eternal Audience of One, when you read a novel like this that situates you in a small city like this, you it, it opens up mm. a new world. Let's talk about yeah. your main character in this this story. It is a male protagonist named uh, Seraphine. He's the oldest of three boys in a Rwandan immigrant family living in Namibia. And you just talked about how difficult it is for anyone to live in uh, Vindhoek. Tell me, as is your writing and as a writer... Um, both personally and through these characters, how does place shape your characters um, oh, as you're writing? Man, place is so wonderful because it literally changes the DNA of the writing right down to the sentence. And this is something that I've seen mm. from all of the wonderful writers I've been able and fortunate enough to read throughout my life is where you situate your story, that place influences the way the characters think, their feelings, their emotions, their language, the way they speak, the things that they can do, the people that they can be. It affects their hopes, aspirations, just everything. So when you think of like a fictional story like Middle, like uh, The Lord of the Rings, which is set in Middle Earth, they have the, like this epic way of speaking, like where they make these rousing speeches and whatnot. And like that makes sense because that's Middle Earth and we don't speak in that way in the ordinary course of our lives. Like I don't wake up at five in the morning, just make resounding speeches to rally the, the Rohirrim, you know? Uh, but at the same time, uh, if you read something like Zadie Smith's On Beauty or uh, Colson Whitehead's Sag Harbor, the way that people speak and the way their lives are tied to place, to the places there are, upstate New York or, uh, or Northwest London, they, that place literally warps them and it, they, they, they either shift like their personalities or their characters or the beings either shift to wrap around the place to suit it or they don't and are broken in some way by the place. And so I loved 
um, setting my story in Vintuk because one, it's not a very well explored place. As you said, it is a tourist destination in the sense that you pass through it. It is never the final destination for a lot of people. It is either the start mm. or the end point of something. And so in setting it here, it was wonderful to see the way this place and its challenges, its racism, its class, its, its economics, its everything just works on these characters who are not indigenous or native to this place. The metaphor that we always have is always like a, a lot of immigrants who wind up here are tropical orchids, but Namibia is a desert. Mm. And so you can imagine people, yeah, people coming from the equator, from places where it's just bigger, it's faster, it's quicker, and you wind up in this place that is the opposite of what you're used to. The way the desert will affect you, the way this climate will affect you, the way the people, the way every politics, history, everything will affect you is quite different from anywhere else. So, I mean, it was wonderful to hear that you're from Omaha in Nebraska, and you can just imagine the change from Omaha to living in Washington, D.C. or to New York. Place affects you because you've never, you maybe never have the experience of living in these big cosmopolitan metropolitan cities. I don't know what it was like for you, but place was such a big thing and it affected every single part of of my life. And I've seen that affect characters in other people's writings as well. So I was enjoying every minute of like grounding it in this place. The challenge though was in uh, making this place more than just politics, more than just economics and making it a fictional place, a place in which a narrative can take part, like uh, how to explain that it makes sense. You can see it's fiction. You can obviously see it's based on a real place, but it's not an act of journalism, if that makes sense, Laurie. It does. It does. And I want to go back to something you said that's uh, really intriguing. You said that place can show mm. up in the DNA of a sentence. And many times in this novel, we get to sections where uh, the interaction between the characters comes in the form of very short messages, kind of like in a chat room. Um, how did you come to write in that style? Because it's it's quite effective and we get little clues about place and the grounding influence of the characters yeah. through these short little dialogues. Yeah, we, we chat all the time, especially when we're growing up, there were a lot of chat platforms. This was like before, the time before social media. It always seems like Social media has always been here, but there was a time before this. And it really tracks the evolution of like the way conversations were happening in these places from various platforms. But the way these kids in the, in the, in, in the novel, uh, the way they talk, it, it's re their slang is the easiest way to place them. The words that they use, you can tell these are not kids who live in, in Los Angeles because their slang is just different. The way they talk, the way the the cadence of their speech for me personally is, is very, is very native to Namibia and the Southern African region because, you know, there's a lot of cross-pollination uh, across all the countries here. But in, in grounding the, in using these things, I was inspired by a lot of, you'd be surprised where I found the courage to do this. Um, a lot of the Jane Austen novels, they just have, paragraphs, paragraph, and then boom, a whole letter. But even back then, people were just writing letters in the middle of a novel. Like a character would write a letter to another person, and that letter would appear in the text. Well, you've almost anticipated another question that I have, because 
I feel that uh, when I, especially when I speak with authors who um, are writing from Africa, and I, I've asked this question of some guests we've had on the program, Helan Habila, who uh, lives man. and works, wonderful author, um, who, like you, has been honored by the uh, the Kane organization, and uh, Maza Mengise, who lives in the United States, but writes for, very much from an yeah. Ethiopian point of view. And I've asked them, what does it mean to be a Namibian writer mm. or a Rwandan mm. writer or an African writer? To be honest, um, those labels are only useful to me from a publishing perspective because those things help to outline and state the challenges that I face in getting a story out. Uh, I see myself being part, as a writer, I see myself being part of a larger community of writers, including Shakespeare and uh, Ovid and uh, Maza Mengiste and Chimamanda Adichie and Michael Chabon. You know, we, as writers, we all exist in this universe together. But those rather narrower prescriptive labels like Rwandan-born or Namibian or African writers, those for me represent publishing hurdles that I have to get through in order to convince somebody that this story, whether you're in Kuala Lumpur or Buenos Aires, there's going to be something. And I think, you know, people like Helen and Maza are so much smarter than I am, and they, they've been involved in this literary scene a lot longer, so their, their answers are, would be way more nuanced. But my, my understanding of that at this, at this point in time is that being an African writer is for me, writing not only from the continent or writing stories about the continent, but facing and overcoming the challenges that African literature faces because there are tangible challenges in terms of like, uh, so I, I am Rwandan and Namibian, but in order to get the story across, I first have to cross this other hurdle that says, hmm, well, you're not Nigerian because Nigerians occupy such a very big and prominent role in African literature, you know? So it's like trying to figure out um, how close to this gravity must you be to not be part of it, but to also benefit mm. from it. Um, and then, you know, you're also coming from a tradition that, you know, there's Africa. I mean, the, let me rephrase that. There's Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, Egypt, Ghana, which are proud and Zimbabwe the most predominant and strongest literary traditions on the continent. How do you, how do you differentiate yourself from these other traditions while also paying respect to them because they, they are in your history and they are part of like the culture. So for me, uh, being an African writer means finding my place on the continent within the literary various traditions and then overcoming the hurdles that all those traditions face as well. And this is, it's particularly interesting coming from Africa because there are so many languages and dialects and traditions. But at the, as we say in Washington, all politics are local. I can't help but ask you, uh, when, when your book was first released by Blackbird Books in South Africa, what was the reader response in South Africa and Namibia? Yeah. Yeah, so it was controversial in the sense that I was Rwandan and Namibian living in Namibia, but my book was first published in essay. There was a first sense of immediate possessive ownership, like why wasn't this book published here? And that led to the first conversation that we do not have publishing industries that were willing or capable of taking on the story. So Joe 
This was the yeah, response in yeah, Namibia. That was the first one. Yeah. So like, why was it not published here? Well, there were challenges that made this book only be able to be published over there. The second was there was this feeling locally of airing laundry, dirty laundry, very dirty laundry from the pro. Yeah. From the prologue, especially I got a lot of flack for that, but it was interesting that they never disputed anything that was said in the prologue. They were just a little bit shocked that it came out on an international stage because these are conversations that nobody's willing to have at a local interpersonal level. And now they were in a book in a very, in a book that was being distributed in South Africa. Or like, do we need this out there right now? So the first initial response was hostile from Namibia. But in South Africa, mm. um, it was actually very positive and very well received. The reviews were very good. Uh, a lot of readers picked it up. Um, a, lo- uh, a, lot of, a lot of people from my alma mater at the University of Cape Town were enthusiastic about the book. The festivals that I, the, the few festivals that I was able to attend before COVID were absolutely stellar, supportive, engaged, nuanced, all of those wonderful things. And then because of that response, it then triggered a re-response from Namibia. Like, wait, are we being too harsh on this book? Shall we, shall we re-engage mm-hmm. with it and ask ourselves what it is that's actually being discussed? Um, and then that, sec- that tertiary response was different from the first one. And then obviously when it got picked up by Scout Press in the U.S., the response was quite different because I think everybody then realized like, look, it might be a hard conversation, but it is a necessary conversation and we should not necessarily be scared of having these conversations amongst ourselves. But woo, that prologue got me into some trouble. I can relate to what you must have felt because when I have read the opening few lines to people, they're like, ooh, well, that's saucy. That's a little different. <laughs> that's quite that's quite a strong um, opening. And you know what you've done <laughs> what you've done in the book is you have put a kind of a spotlight on Namibia, but you've also put a spotlight on a very small Rwandan community within Windhoek. And and the sentence in the book really stayed with me, and it is this, anyone who is not home is a refugee. And in the novel, the character Seraphine's parents, so they, they're holding Rwandan values very close to their hearts as they begin a new life in Namibia. And uh, it's clear that they place a high priority on education, not only for themselves, but for their children. And and I want to talk about the women for a minute, because the mother's character, Therese, there's a line that says, to be an educated yeah. woman, <laughs> yeah. let me get my notes here, is like being deflowered <laughs> by the devil. And I thought that was quite, well, it's a beautiful sentence and very graphic, but it to me, it spoke to the sacrifice and tension between the tradition and modernity. So what can you share about kind of the weight of expectation as it comes through the characters? Those two characters, Guillaume, Seraphine's dad, and Therese, uh, Seraphine's mom, are both educated abroad, one in Paris and one in Brussels. And back then, I remember in that era of like Rwandan history, especially African history, there was a big drive to have Western educated um, students coming back to help in the rebuilding of their, of their countries. And so that's really where that whole 
um, education is, is important, knowledge is power narrative really came from, but it was a particular type of education and knowledge, i.e. you had to go abroad to learn and then come back home to implement. You couldn't just be at home and learn there. Apparently that was not good enough. And that stereotype still exists today. The weight of expectation, what a wonderful sentence. That should become an, ex- an essay. It should become an essay, Laurie, like, uh, please allow me to have that. But yeah, that's just some of the things that I'm thinking about right now. Education comes at a price, especially when you pressure kids to study abroad in the sense that abroad is better because those kids are going to come back with that sense of betterness. You know, Remy, uh, as I think about what you just said, um, I'm also thinking about how the story moves along. And we get into a section of the book called The High Lords of Empireland. And now I'm thinking about these characters and real people who leave one place and go to another. They're leaving something behind, perhaps that they had already built or were in the process of building, and they have to start again. So Tell me something about what this connection of friendships means. Why did you name it the High Lords of Empire Land? And, and tell me something about the concept of tying yeah. empire or connecting empire yeah. to man. Oh, man. First of all, I mean, what part of empire is not steeped in patriarchy? And you have, you land in a place and you must name it. And you must name it after yourself. I mean, uh, Rhodesia was named after like Cecil John Rhodes. Um, a lot of the towns in, uh, is it upstate New York were like named after the kings of England, like Jamestown and Georgetown. And whoo, there's, there's like big power in like naming a place and it must be called this after this person. Uh, yeah, you know, um, <laughs> and, in, and in naming, yes. in calling this the high laws of empire land, it's so basically, it is my belief that wherever people go, regardless of uh, whether it is university, whether it is a workplace, like calls to like, spirit calls to spirit, as the Jamaicans like to call it. I love that phrase, spirit calls to spirit. And together, you are able to form some form of community. And that's what this group of friends are. They're just a community of like-minded or similarly situated individuals who must survive university life Cape Town life, South African life, together. Um, the best way to do this, of course, is to just hang out with each other, be friends, to understand each other's struggles, but it also comes with forging your own identity. And even if it is a small mm. thing, like calling your WhatsApp group the High Lords of Empire Land, it gives you a definitive identity because you're not like another group of friends who might call themselves the ladies or whatever. And I've always loved these films like the Lords of Dogtown, like how awesome is the title? Just people calling themselves these things, you know, this act of naming is absolutely important to identity formation. Because even when you look at the history of things, when, whenever independence, political, social independence comes, it comes with the automatic right to rename this thing. And so that renaming is a, is a form of claiming identity. But in also calling themselves the high laws of empire land, they realize that Cape Town as a former settler colony, as a political um, capital right now in the world, is an act of empire. As you were writing this story and you were reflecting on your own 
uh, personal history and travels. There, there is an evolution um, coming through this story about how you think about visiting other places. Ultimately, it is my feeling right now that nobody leaves home unless, unless home is a, is a troubled place. Anybody in migration, and whether it is you know, political, economic, social, migration is brought about by something very troubled happening at home. Nobody leaves home for like, the only time you leave home is when you're traveling, but if you're migrating, it means something's troubled. And I think that appreciation, that sensitivity to know that this person is certainly not here because they think it's better. Because you know what? I live here and I can tell you it is not better. But most likely what they are there for is that whatever you have over there is infinitely, infinitely so much better than whatever it is that they might be experiencing in their native countries or communities and whatnot. Because ultimately, I think the tale of migration is this, is this relentless search for just decency and dignity. My guest today is Remy Gamiji. His uh, debut novel, The Eternal Audience of One, was just released in the United States. I have listeners who uh, love to hear from authors about their writing process. How do you think about structure? The easiest answer is that structure for me is often an answer to or a solution to a problem that I'm facing with a narrative. Um, I did not, for, I'm not a trained writer in the sense that I did not go to an MFA program or take creative writing courses. So the structure of the novel breaking into various parts is a, is an, is a way for me to manage the narrative um, because I, it, the first draft was un, unwieldy. It was wildly unmanageable because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> um, and so the structure, I, I, I came up with the structure, like let's break it up into these parts, into these chapters, find an anchor for each particular movement of the work, and then try and work the narrative within that. And that's, so the book itself is a solution to the problem that I was facing. And Remy Gamije's new novel is The Eternal Audience of One. It is heralded around the world for a reason. It is brilliant, engaging. It's a page turner. It's, it's everything you want in um, a great book. I want to thank you so much, Remy, for joining Real Fiction today. Again, the author is one of the bright new emerging voices on the African continent. And I can't recommend this book enough. It's titled The Eternal Audience of One. It was just released least in the United States. Remy, thank yeah. you for joining Lori, me. Lori, thank you for having me. Thank you for providing a platform to share uh, my stories and my works. And thank you to all the readers out there who are just taking part in this literary narrative. It's always wonderful to be a reader. You've been listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. All Real Fiction episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about today's guest, head over to that website for a full profile. Thanks for listening. <laughs>